0: as found in Matthew, chapter 15, verses 29 through 39. Um, As we were meeting with staff uh, last week, I was sort of sharing, I go, you know, this really isn't a Christmas message. And Joe, who is the one who thinks the most outside of the box, of pretty much anybody I know, um, and um, he said, "Well, sure it is." And I even forget what he said. But after he said it, I go, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> I just wish I could remember it. <laughs> so, um There's also I'm, I'm sending out uh, an email this this today. That's a devotional by John Eldridge. And his whole per focus on Christmas is that when Christ came to earth when he was born a war started Um, and we sometimes think of this beautiful picture of the baby and the innocents and the stars and the wise men all that but the reality is is that war was declared when Jesus came to earth it was war Jesus was coming to conquer the darkness conquer death conquer evil conquer satan and so immediately when jesus came a war was established and i had never really pictured it quite the way that john eldridge did um and so anyway i sent that devotional out to to everybody who's on the mailing list so if you see another never-ending email on your list from me um this one is good you should read it Um, (laughs) because I know I know some people will say something and I will put it in the email and they never say anything to me again so I just knew they're not reading them (laughs) Um, But take a few minutes and read Matthew uh, 15 29 through 39 at your tables you could have somebody read it out loud for your tables um, or you can just go ahead and um, read it silently but go ahead and take a minute and just read Matthew fifteen, twenty nine through thirty nine. In Mark's Gospel, it tells us that Jesus is doing ministry in the Decapolis, which was 10 cities that were sort of tucked in this group between two um, Hebrew or Jewish regions. And yet these were Gentile cities. And because of that, more than likely the people in these cities, their small cities, um, had heard all these things about Jesus, but he had been spending his time in Galilee. And last week we saw that he left there, went to Tyre and Sidon, and healed uh, a Canaanite woman's daughter who was demon-possessed. And because of that, he, and she called him Lord, son, son of David, and the Messiah. And because of that, we see him saying to her, as well as he said to the centurion, you know, ye of great faith. And he had never said that to any of his own disciples. He, he made that statement to two Gentiles. And so now he's going on further. And not only did he then speak to this one woman, uh, Canaanite woman, but now he's going and he's going to this area that's all Gentiles. Um, and because of that, the whole reality of the story is that Christ shows no preference that his love is equal among all people. If he was going to heal a Jew, he was going to heal a Gentile. If he was going to feed the Jewish people, he was going to feed the Gentile people. He was He loved everybody. And this is sort of the proof of that in the beginning of that um, of, in all of this. At the same time, what we begin to see in Mark 5, uh, Matthew 15,16 and 17, is that people begin to reject Jesus. And what I mean by that, they call him a great prophet, they call him a great teacher, they call him all kinds of things, but they don't call him the Messiah. And because they don't call him the Messiah, because they don't look to him for salvation, that's rejection of Christ. And so you just see that continue to grow in Matthew 15, 16, and 17. And so that's sort of this turning point. Um, so Jesus sits down on this mountainside, which is sort of a typical thing for, for a teacher to do. He'd sit, the people would be standing around, and he would start teaching. Um, and so the multiple, multitudes came. And and you got to try to imagine this picture. Because if you have this multitude of people, 4,000 people, and they are bringing... Jesus's, to bring into Jesus all the lame, all the blind, all the mutilated, the crippled, uh, and many others. And then some, if we look back at some of the texts or some of the translations, and it will talk about people who were actually, you know, mutilated. And the commentators would say, you know, these were people that were not only mutilated, some of them were missing limbs. Uh, They were missing body parts. And they're bringing these people to Jesus to be healed. And we sometimes think, because, you know, and we see it all the time on TV somebody comes up and we have this healing ministry, and this person's got a back pain, and now they're healed. And we have this person who's got, you know, an earache, and now it's healed. We're talking about people who never saw. We're talking about people who are mutilated. We're talking about people who, you know, were truly, truly miraculous healings by Jesus and it's a it's chaotic because they're taking these people and the Greek sort of gives you the impression that they're fleeing these people at the feet of Jesus they're not just sort of standing nice in line and you know bring the next one and then we'll you know we'll have a couple of ushers there and then you know after they get healed we'll usher them back into the back room and give them some orange juice you know what but this is this massive humanity that is hungering, hungering for healing, hungering for hope. And they're just hoping that they can get people in there to see Jesus, family members, themselves, that Jesus would heal them. This is going on for three days. And he's healing them. This isn't like, you know, you know, the game's gonna start shortly. We we need to get going. This is three days. Full days. At nighttime, they sleep there. Next morning, they wake up, and this process is going on. People who had never spoken were speaking. People who had never seen were seen. People who had never walked were walking. Limbs were restored. And in verse 31, the multitude marveled. They are left with wonder and astonishment as they're seeing miracle after miracle, but not just miracle after miracle. They're seeing teachings followed by miracles. They're seeing love and compassion that is like they've never seen before, that somebody actually cares about what's going on in their life. That somebody actually cares. Their pagan gods didn't. The Pharisees didn't. But now you have Jesus who's coming in to truly care. And their wonder was greater than the wonder of the Jews. And their their wonder was greater probably than the wonder of Christians today. And the reason why their wonder was greater than the wonder of the Jews is that the Jews couldn't comprehend if it didn't fit into their ceremonial law. I know, I know he just healed that person, but they, they didn't wash their hands first. So was that really a miracle? And how many times we do the same type of thing? God tell you know, somebody shares about a miraculous intervention from God, or a person's life being transformed by God, and the skepticism or the cynicism of many people say, well, yeah, but it didn't happen in the Presbyterian church, so it must not be real. Or it didn't it didn't fit my tradition, or it didn't fit my expectation. So now I just question whether or not it's really, you know, really God. And that's exactly what the Jews were doing. And the Gentiles were saying, whoa, we've never seen anything like this. This is truly miraculous. And they sat there in awe and wonder. Um, And then there's a big difference between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And sometimes people get those two confused. The feeding of the 5,000 was primarily to Jews. And the feeding of the 4,000 was primarily to Gentiles. And because it was primarily to Gentiles, after remember what, after just a day of Jesus teaching, what did the disciples do? They go to Jesus and say, hey, these people are hungry. You know, what are we gonna do? After three days and the Gentiles were out there, the disciples never say a word. They don't go and, hey, Jesus, you know, we got some hungry people out here. Uh, you know, after one day you fed all the, all the Jews, uh, this has been three days and the Gentiles haven't had anything. It wasn't even on the disciples' radar. It was Jesus who goes to them and says, I have compassion on these people. What's implied with that statement? I have compassion, where were you guys? Where were you guys in this? How come after three days you didn't say something about that these people would be hungry? Um, So I want to feed them. So we have a completely different scenario. Now just as a sidebar, this really is what Jesus does for all of us. Not only is he concerned or has compassion for people's spiritual needs that have eternal consequences, our spiritual needs have eternal consequences, he has compassion for the physical needs that have a lifelong consequence. As long as we're alive on this earth, those physical needs have a life, you know, there's a consequence but he also is concerned and has compassion on our daily needs. And sometimes I think, again, that's where Christians sort of miss it. We see God is constantly distanced, and yet he is concerned about every single thing that goes on in our life, from the eternal to the lifelong to the daily. He's concerned about what goes on. And at the end of verse 32, he says, And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, Lest they faint on the way. So they have been eaten for three days. And he knows that this ministry is starting to wind down. And so he doesn't want them to all go home and then just see them dropping on the way. <laughs> I just spent all this time healing them and now they're you know on the way home. So let's feed them. Now it's interesting to note. When um, you take a look at it, after each one of these big ministries, the Galilean ministry, this, this, sir, this healing on the mountain, um, every one of those ends with a meal. Every one's in there. And then, even when he ends his ministry with the disciples, how does he end it? With a meal. He's constantly feeding his people, spiritually and physically. And sometimes we just lose sight of the simple things that God wants to do in our lives. Um, And again, the disciples. Where are we to get enough bread to such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Now, I read a lot, and everybody sort of focused on, once again, the unbelief of the disciples. Jesus just did this five years, fed 5,000, and now the disciples are asking him again. Where are we gonna get the food? Come on, did you forget? And I don't see it that way. I don't think the emphasis here is just on their unbelief, but a recognition, once again, on their lack of resources. You know, if if you're depending on us to do this, Jesus, we can't, we can't. We're we're gonna need you again. They knew Jesus could do it, they hadn't forgotten. They also knew their own areas of inadequacy Because if you had just seen jesus feed five thousand you might be reminded you know what once again jesus here we go again but it's not going to be you got to do it you got to because i'm not adequate i don't have the resources in myself to do the things that you're asking me to do and so they call that now this is total speculation total speculation okay so this isn't from the scripture this is from my imagination. So don't quote it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <A> warning. <laughs> yeah. um,
0: I, when I came up with this, I almost felt like Joe. News um, <laughs> <laughs> expressed by Andy Do not <laughs> may have been something else going on the disciples see this crowd and they remember the last time that Jesus fed 5,000 people what did the crowd do they wanted to keep Jesus there and they want him to come back the next day and feed us again and they come back the next day and feed us again and they wanted to make him king and so after they fed the 5,000 the people had totally misinterpreted what Jesus was trying to do. And the disciples may have had that as a memory. And another aspect of why they did not feel any compassion or feel this desire to do anything was because they were Gentiles. And they had a lifelong history of hating Gentiles, of going through all the ritual of being unclean if they touched a Gentile. So they may have just said, you know what, uh, well, let them go hungry, or I don't have that, that need. And those are sometimes the same things that happen to us. That our traditions, our biases, our histories prevent us from reaching out to people who are not like us. And that we just need to sometimes overcome some of those things. Um, So anyway, after that, verse 34, Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? And he doesn't ask how how many loaves and fish, but they add to that. They go, well, we've got seven loaves and a few little fish. And some version says two little fish. Uh, And so once again, it's showing the inadequacy that really what we have is useless to feed 5,000 or four thousand people and so in verse 35 it says and directing the crowd to sit down on the ground he took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks he broke them and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowd now in the greek and in the text or in the um the, the verb tense it sort of gives this indication that this is continuing to go in. The disciples keep on coming to Jesus. Jesus keeps on filling up their baskets. The disciples keep on going back to feed the people. And this is just an ongoing procession that is taking place, which is huge. I mean, sometimes we just don't see, we don't have the word pictures to just see that they keep on bringing these baskets, they come to Jesus, and he creates out of nothing fish and bread to go feed the people. And that his supply never ends. And then in verse 37 and 38 says, And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces of leftover. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. They did all eat, and they were all filled. Again, the Lord never left them half full. And again... Jesus is in a for people to come to him and then go away with their needs unmet. So just as he healed the Canaanite woman's daughter, and he, you know, no matter what was going to take place, her need was going to be met. And he does that over and over and over again, whether it be an eternal need, a lifelong need, or a daily need. Jesus is there to meet those needs. And then end of verse 31 um, he goes they glorified the God of Israel now that's basically the story but there's some lessons there's about six lessons that I got out of this if you looked at it you could probably get dozens of lessons Um, but the six I got was right from the beginning the first lesson is obvious jesus we see the divine power of jesus christ we see god working the first thing that confronts us in this text is that jesus is god because only god can create so he's creating something out of nothing and according to one he's creating sight where there was no sight he's creating speech where there was no speech he's creating healing He's creating, so he's recreating bodies. At the same time, he's creating food to feed people. So you see this divine nature of God. And for whatever reason, because it didn't fit with the Jewish tradition, they couldn't even recognize that. But the Gentiles saw something that none of their gods that they had worshipped had ever done. And so they see this divine nature of God. Romans 4 says it is God alone who can create. And here he is recreating bodies and creating fish and bread. He is the creator God. Anything less than that has absolutely no ability to describe the situation. No ability to describe the situation. You know, there, There's nowhere in your mind you could possibly comprehend that. At teen night I, I shared... Um, a, briefly about multiple choice quizzes. And how God always you know, A is one answer, B is another answer, C is another answer, and D is usually none of the above. You know? And so when confronted with these situations, humanly speaking, you would come up, okay, they've got four thousand people, send them home. I know they're tired, I know they're hungry, but there's we have no resources. Or option B um let them all go out I think AJ said let let them go hunting um and then you know and we come up with all the options nobody would have come up with option D none of the above Jesus you can create anything out of nothing feed them just feed them and the reason he does is because of his compassion for his people the second lesson is that the goal of all that we do is worship. The goal of all that we do is worship. And again, I think that we miss that, and I think it's been missed in the church. Uh, they glorified the God of Israel. Everything, everything we do is to bring glory to God, not to ourselves. You see, we don't minister to people just to meet their needs. We minister to people for the sake that they will glorify God. That's why we do what we do. 2 Corinthians 4.15, Paul says, All of this is for your benefit. I'm doing these things for you. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving, and God will receive more and more glory. So Paul's saying, the reason I do the things I do is so that God will get more and more glory. That's hard to have that kind of humility. To say, you know, it's not about me. It's it's about God getting the glory and seeing lives transformed. That's the goal and purpose of everything. And because of that, these people were in awe. They were filled with wonder. They were filled with praise. And I think that that's an extremely hard message to get across in a society that is utterly self-centered, utterly self-absorbed and self-consumptive. We wanna just do whatever we can to fulfill whatever our desires, our wants, our needs are. And to say, no, it's about God. How do we do that? And so people run to God with their demands, which is why certain messages that focus on what's in it for me have a great following. And others that may say, what does it mean to be a true disciple of Christ? Not so much. And that has always been throughout history and it will always be until the return of Christ. Something that tickles our ears is much more enjoyable to listen to than something that says, it's not about me. It's about God, and then it's about others. And so that's just not an easy message. A third lesson is the lesson lesson of dependence upon God's resources. Once again, um, the disciples are there. They're right on the edge of watching what God's going to do and God says, feed them. And oh, you've got to be kidding. I, I don't have the resources. And it's at that point God can say, I know, but I do. And because I do, I'm going to empower you to do the things that you don't think you can do on your own power, or the fact that you, the things you know you can't do on your own power. So Jesus says, go forth, at the end of Matthew, he says, go forth and make disciples of all nations. Yeah, okay, that's going to happen. You know, on my own power? And so these are the things that only when we recognize the power of God working in a life does it make a difference. Last week I said that true humility is the only thing that brings around hope because humility says there's, there's a power greater than myself. There's a God of the universe. There's Jesus Christ who makes a difference. And right now I need him. And when I know that he's there for me, that's when I can have hope. But when we try to hope in anything other than that, we don't have true hope. And right now we have a society that has lost hope. We have the highest suicide rates. We have the highest you know, drug overdoses. So, and I mentioned this last week that the um, the average age of an American has dropped because of suicide and because of drug overdose and the primary age group 25 to 45 no hope and I think we also have a society that has lost an understanding of the power of God to impact a life um, And so I'm not sure if we will ever find hope without Christ. So we need to be dependent. When we're dependent on God's resources, um, we recognize that we don't have to go through life with a scarcity mentality, but we can go through life with an abundance mentality. And again, when we think that we've got it all together and that we can do it on our own, basically that's when God says, okay, you get on the sideline I got somebody else I'm going to use and, uh, because I need somebody who's truly dependent upon me to do this so so again he was teaching them the uselessness of human items to accomplish spiritual ends, which takes us to the fourth lesson which is the lesson of God's abundant supply so the text says the, the Lord says give me what you got it isn't enough but I'll multiply it and make it enough And that's what jesus says to all of us give me you just give me you and it may not be enough but i will multiply whatever you have and make it enough and then everyone is filled and in all of that it never stops and i've known people who think i've had these many blessings and i got to hold on to them because i'm only going to get so many because god's limited And the amount of blessings that he's able to give so i'm just going to hold on to these gifts myself and we're like you know three-year-olds you know mine 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 and we're not going to share it with anybody and god says okay well you can hold on to that little thing but over here i'm going to be just continuing to recreate and create blessings and blessings and opportunities and opportunities for people who aren't hoarding but instead giving Giving their love, giving their stewardship of everything that God has given them and sharing it. And that really is the lesson of stewardship, Um, which leads to the fifth lesson. And that's the usefulness of serving Christ. See, not only are we going to be stewards of our finances, but we're also supposed to be stewards of the things that God has given us. Um, And here he goes. Disciples go feed them and once again the disciples are called in to be waiters serving people and he really didn't need to do that he could have just as easily said okay we're just going to start dropping loaves of bread from the sky and it's going to feed the people he did that with manna I mean he could easily do it with bread and fish he did it with the quail he could do it with the bread and the fish. But instead, he calls the disciples and says, now you go out and serve. Really? we got to feed 4,000? We just got through feeding 5,000. And now you're bringing us back into service? Why does he do that? Because sometimes we don't understand the greatest blessing in life is when we take the opportunity to go serve somebody else. And and he's saying, you have an opportunity to join me in, in impacting another person's life for the better. You have an opportunity to be with me to see a life transformed. You have an opportunity to be with me as we witness a spiritual birth. You have an opportunity to experience all those things when we serve. When we sit at home and hold on to our own spiritual gifts saying, there's not enough blessings to go around I'm gonna hold on to mine you lose it when we had the Christmas craft day and to see a hundred kids in this room making crafts making 600 crafts almost 600 crafts um, it was just amazing to see these kids running around serving and then to be able to go and to have 140 people listen to the Christmas story And the amazing thing is that, you know what the most popular Christmas movie is? The Christmas story now. And you know that the Christmas story never talks about the birth of Christ. And so there's millions of people that are growing up never hearing the story of Christ. And his birth. But they've watched all all the other movies and so we had 140 people that were able to hear the Christmas story that's great to just see these kids absorbing that and taking that that's what it that's what Christ invites us to be a part of and then the final lesson and this is really the lesson that takes full circle and it's what the whole passage is about verse 32 I have compassion Jesus's compassion is the major lesson taught in this section. And basically the word comes from Latin means to suffer with, but really in English, it has much more of a broader perspective. It describes compassion this way, a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the pain and remove its cause. So not only is there's this great feeling of sorrow, but there's something inside of you that says, if only I could do something to help alleviate that pain. Um, For the lands it meant to suffer with, but in English, it has come to mean not only to suffer, but to feel their pain, to feel their hurt, and to have the strong desire to alleviate it. Um, And I just think that's an amazing definition. had an opportunity to uh, meet a young family and while talking with them found out the the mother has cancer and it's not it's not a good one and she has three kids that are young and I'm talking with them and she is showing such joy and you know just sharing about what was going on and there was just this overwhelming sense of compassion and i just wish that i had the power to reach into her body and just rip out the cancer to alleviate that pain well probably every person in this room has had experiences like that if you've had children <laughs> you've had experiences like that um, if you've had friends you've had experiences like that where you see somebody that you love or somebody that you feel that closely to and you know they're in deep pain and all you wish you could do was you feel it and it's kicking you in the gut and you just wish you could do something to alleviate that pain that's how Jesus is That's how he feels towards us. That when we feel that type of compassion and we just want to do whatever we can to alleviate somebody else's pain, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He goes, not only do I feel this, I want to alleviate it. And the difference between us and Jesus, he can. And we can't. And I can't do anything for this person other than pray and to share with them and to love them in hopes that they develop a relationship with Christ, that Christ can comfort them in however they're going to heal that life. Um, That's the compassion of God. That's the compassion. And if you learn anything at all about God, You see, throughout the scriptures, that kind of compassion. In Lamentations, there's a great statement about the compassion of God. It says, it is because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because His compassions fail not. And then it says, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Every morning, His compassions are new. And in Romans 9.15, it says that God said, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So not only does he have compassion relative to our spiritual needs, to our lifelong needs, but to our daily needs. The choice is ours whether or not we're going to rely on him and his resources and his power and his compassion And his guidance and his leading to impact our lives father I just praise you and thank you for this day I thank you for the opportunity that you give us once again to come together and worship you and Lord I thank you that your compassions never fail that they are new every morning And in the midst of going through pains, going through hurts, going through losses, going through struggles, that when we try to solve them on our own resources, we will continue to fail miserably. That you are always there, not only to meet our need, but to guide us through it. And so, Father, just ask that you continue to minister to each and every person here. Uh, You've heard our prayers. You've heard our concerns. You've heard our joys. You've heard the things that we haven't said. And so, Lord, as we leave here today, may each of us leave here a changed person, a person who's drawn that much closer to you and closer to one another. And may we truly experience your compassion and your mercies each day for great is your faithfulness we thank you we praise you we ask these things In the name of our Lord Savior Jesus Christ and all God's people said